everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You are listening to Old Time Rock and Roll. everybody and welcome to a very special edition of old time rock and roll i'm your host lee douglas and tonight one of our series called reminiscing and tonight we reminisce with the go jimmy go boy himself jimmy clanton so let's get right to the phone and begin and i want to introduce to you the uh, probably the headliner of the ultimate doo-wop revival i love to call you a headliner well, uh, going, <laughs> going on in Freedom, at the Freedom Hill Amphitheater on Saturday evening, August 22nd in Sterling, Michigan. And this is a great privilege to have on one of my idols. My God. Uh, and teenage idol. I mean, I'm not one of those uh, teenage girls, but I'll tell you, this man had the girls. He had the women. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We won't say any more. Jimmy Clanton, welcome to Old Time Rock and Roll. Well, thank you very much. It's it's really a privilege to be with everybody. Well, Jimmy, you know, Jimmy, I, 
you know, we, we all, of course, want to talk about what you're doing right now, and, and we are talking about the doo-wop revival that you are on. And you do a lot of these, don't you, during the year now? Uh, it worked out that way that I, I do, I probably do two to three a month at the most. I, I don't really do uh, much more than that because uh, the traveling, I don't have to tell you, uh, since 9-11, uh, traveling is very laborious and uh, with the way things are. So I do about two to three, uh, you know, a month at the most, all over the United States. It just works out that way, <laughs> yes. Well, that is good. But one of the main things, I mean, I want to talk to you, I want to talk, of course, about your career and how you started back in, what, 1958? Well, I actually started, uh, technically I started in, in 50. 57, uh-huh. uh, because <clears throat> that's when I got out of high school, and I became a part of a, of, of a white rhythm and blues band. Uh, down in Louisiana, uh, we didn't use the, the term rock and roll. Uh, down there in that part of the South, everything was rhythm and blues. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, R&B. And uh, so I, um, I actually started out wanting to just be a guitar player. I the singing was was something I never considered, uh, mm-hmm. but uh, ironically, um, as I started playing in a local band around town, uh, I was making five dollars a night, and uh, then uh, one time, uh, the the guy that headed up the band asked me, you know, would you do a song? So I just by osmosis I had learned this one song because I I played it so much and I liked it so much on the radio. Uh-huh. And lo and behold, uh, you know, I'm not going to deny it. You know, the girls started coming up to the front. Mm-hmm. And the next thing I know, uh, even the band leader saw how popular <laughs> so quickly I became. So he asked me if I wanted to do more singing. And so the bottom line was I said, well, you know, uh, in that case, why don't we make me a, a co-member to where I can make more money? So I went from $5 a night to $10 a night, which was a, which was a great thrill for me. So I said, okay, you know, just being a guitar player is one thing, but when you sing and play, that's where you make you know a little more money. So I pretty much graduated into uh, full-time music is what it amounted to. And now, was was uh, was your brother Ike part of that rock the group, the Rockets? Or uh, no, he was not. Uh, he pretty much um, he was a year behind me in school. And uh, he really only played here and there on a local basis, uh, but just a bass player. He really didn't sing. And um, I, I was – anyway, so uh, he pretty much stayed behind the scenes. And uh, things kind of went quickly for me because in a year, the way it really started, if you want me to continue with this. Sure, absolutely. Okay. The way it actually all started was I had um, – the the girl who was dating the piano player came over to him one day and said, you know, this is in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, where I grew up. Right. And she told him, she said, you know, there's a recording studio in New Orleans. New Orleans, that's how we pronounced it. Mm-hmm. And for $25, you guys can, uh, he'll give you an hour recording time, and y'all can, you know, hear hear what you sound like. So we thought, well, that's cool. So we went down, we went to New Orleans, New Orleans, and uh, the piano player was the main singer, and you know, and I was the guitar player. And uh, although I did a couple of songs here and there, but I didn't do it on that 
on that section. But at the just be, to show you how kind of like a script from Happy Days, uh, <laughs> with about six minutes left on the uh, the time time clock there, the piano player said, "Okay, that's it." And so the the studio guy said, "Well, you know, you got six minutes left. You you know, you're paying for it. Are you sure you don't have anything else?" And so his name was Dick Holler, and he looked Dick looked over at me and he said, "Do you have anything?" I said, well, I got this little song I wrote. I said, you know, we'll just go ahead and, for the sake of putting it down. And so I, I put it down. It was a song called I Trusted You. Mm-hmm. And it was actually about uh, my my first love, who uh, she and I were not, not, not hitting it off too well. We were having problems. And so I, I, I wrote this song. I trusted you for such a long, long time. Call me on the phone About half past two You said goodbye, sweet daddy I'm through with you So what'll I do? I'm so blue I trusted you
that that recording recording studio was the number one top-notch recording studio in that part of the South as far as recording big artists and big hits. Lloyd Price, Fats Domino, Little Richard, all of the black uh, well-to-do artists. Right. And, and this guy comes into the studio getting ready to do a recording session by the name of Johnny Vincent, who owned Ace Records. And mm-hmm. as he's walking through the studio, he hears that playback of our session. And so he asked, the, he asked the studio man, his name was Cosmo, he said, who's that? He said, well, that, that, this kid from Baton Rouge, they just came in here and, you know, paid for a dub. We'll make a long story short, I ended up getting a phone call from Johnny Vincent, invited me to New Orleans, New Orleans. I went down to New Orleans, and, and he just out and out said, he said, you know, he said, I, I like what I heard. I like your sound. I like your style. And he said, I'd like to sign you to a recording studio, but not the group, just you. Well, you know, I had a lot of loyalty toward the group, but on the other hand, this was a an experience that I might have never gotten again. So reluctantly, I did say, well, let me think about this. And, you know, I thought about it for a few days, and the guys in the band, they, they certainly were understanding. They said, look, Jimmy, you, you've got this chance, man. You've got to, you've got to do it. So sure enough, I did. So I recorded that song, uh, uh, I Trusted You, and we put it out locally for about a couple of three months there, and it was played all over the place locally. And then <clears throat> the next thing I know, I get a call from him. He said, okay, he said, look, he said, it's time to do another session. Do you have anything, do you have any material like, like you've been, have you written anything? I said, well, I, I happen, I, I just so happen, yes, I do. So I go into the studio, and they said, well, let's hear. So I played a couple of things. I said, now, here's a ballad. I said, I just wrote this thing in about 20 minutes. I don't know what y'all think about it. And I played this song for them, and the horn section guy, I'll never forget, he walked over. We, we kind of just kind of played it. You know, everybody just kind of jamming, doing a jam session with it. And he looked over, and he said, that's a hit. Just a dream, just a dream All our plans and all our schemes How could I think if you'd be mine? Lies I tell myself each time I know that we could never last Seem to in the past Just a dream I dreamed in vain With you I'd only live in pain Your picture is always with me I can still hear that same mournful song Get you 
A few minutes ago, you heard the original recording, and here's the one that got to play on American Bandstand with the background singers. Here's Just a Dream with Jimmy Clanton. Just a dream, just a dream. All our plans and all our schemes. How could I think? You'd be mine As I tell myself each time I know that we could never last You just can't seem to end the past Just to dream, I dream in vain Is always with me. I can still hear that same mournful song. And now I sit here crying. Please leave me alone. Oh, why, why do I love you? Get you. Forget you, but now I know. 
made for me Is always with me. I can still hear that same mournful song. And now I sit here crying. Please leave me alone. Oh, why, why do I love you? Now I know it's too late for me That's funny because Ace Records was I, I, I think I, when I spoke to you the other night I said you must have some stories because that had to be the wildest place to do anything I mean uh, just on the basis of the people that I know that came out of Ace Records Huey uh, Piano Smith, Bobby Marchand, uh, Frankie Ford uh, they were some Wild people. Well, Hugh Piano Smith and the Clowns. I mean, that, they. Uh, it, it, a fellow named Alan Toussaint. You you had all of these incredible musicians, and everybody would come in, and you would just look at the bunch of them, and you think, well, they couldn't they couldn't play a tune, if it was in a basket. I mean, it was just you you'd never believe it, but you could you could come in with a guitar like I would do. This is how we did it in those days. And I, I was a good guitar player, and I'd play through a song, and the next thing you know, each guy, each of these guys would just throw in, so to speak, their two cents on, hey, you know, this might sound good here. This might, this might, this might sound pretty good right here. And that's how all the arrangements were put together in those days. Mm-hmm. And to show you how far back in time that was, Air conditioning, and you know it gets hot down in Louisiana. Let me tell you, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. it gets real hot. We would have like about 25 tons of ice in this big container with this big airplane-type fan blowing over it and blowing into the studio. That, that was air conditioning. Right. And Yeah. And our, uh, the way you had it, our echo chamber was just a long box. And we would we would send the sound from one end down through the other and record it at the other, and that w- that was the echo chamber because all that stuff had not been invented in 1958. Right. Uh, yeah. But there, w- you did not have. I mean, people don't realize this. We had to do the arrangements on a, on on fine paper because the photocopy machine had not been invented at that time. <laughs> That's right. And so. You you tr- you cherished your music once it was put on paper. You absolutely cherished it because you 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 could not get it redone if you were on the road and lost it. So all of these things uh, put together is is how all of the music came together in that sound. And I'll admit, for several years, we we had a sound that that was different from the New York, uh, L.A. sound. There was no question or Philadelphia sound. Right. Uh, we, we had our own southern type sound that uh, uh, you could only reproduce down, really down in New Orleans, uh, on on the the studio and govern on Governor Nickel Street. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, in fact, was, a, guy, was... a guy that used to play piano in a lot of sessions, 
His name was Mac Rebinac, who later became known as Dr. John. Uh-huh. Wow. Was was this what did the clowns do the majority of the of the orchestral orchestral work uh, in that no, studio? Actually, no. Actually the majority of the work was done by most of the members of Fats Domino's band. I noticed this a lot of especially with the with the uh the saxophones. Oh yeah. The horn yeah. sections. Yeah. Yeah, wow, because I, I noticed this. That was that. That's what made the sound. I think was uh, was those was the saxophones. In well, the, we we were very very big on that. That that's what we classified as the actual backbone of rhythm and blues was horn sections. You know, like mm-hmm. you had over here in Houston. I later got to meet him. Um, uh, golly, there, there's so many guys. Uh, Bobby Blue Bland. Yes, Bobby Blue Bland was an incredible rhythm and blues artist. Uh, Ray Charles, all of these artists used the you know used horns, used brass, and uh, there's no question about it that that was the sound that we all went with uh, in those days down there in the, down south. Now you got to tell me because 
this man has always been an enigma where I, you know, and I've been asked about him and I, I keep saying the same things over again, but I, just from somebody who knows, uh, what can you tell us about Bobby Marchand? Well, I hate to disappoint you, but I can't, I can't, I can't tell you anything. And the reason is, is that most of the music that hit big out of New Orleans with uh-huh. Ace Records, it all stayed hits on a localized area along the Gulf Coast, uh-huh. uh, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, uh, maybe a little bit up into Tennessee, maybe a little bit up into to Little Rock. But uh, however the good Lord worked it out, I was the first one who made a hit record, but then it became national and as right. soon as it became a national hit, the next thing I know, I'm signed to a New York uh, booking agency, and mm-hmm. I'm doing major big shows all over the uni- all over the United States, and I'm no longer just a local Gulf Coast artist. I'm mm-hmm. a national and a lot of worldwide, and so I I totally uh, left. I mean, I I I I had no contact with these people anymore because mm. I was out traveling all over the United States. Playing with the biggest artist in the in the country. Uh huh. But did you go back to do recording sessions, or did you just I record did, the play? I did. I did a couple of times, but eventually, uh, as as uh, different music was presented to me, uh, I did do some recording. Then uh, I did some in Nashville, and then I did do some in uh, in uh, New York. But mm-hmm. uh, I I did do uh, quite a bit of uh, of my album sessions especially with the uh, the stuff that I wrote uh, the uh, the blues type things that I wrote uh, I did that in new in New Orleans yes Yes, I'm wasting time, but I've got 
I noticed that I had seen that you did a uh, a, a cover record of uh, Bobby's uh, Is There Something on Your Mind? And yeah. I, I kind of enjoyed your take on it. Yeah, I did that. I did that in New Orleans at, at our regular recording studio with all the New Orleans, uh, the New Orleans uh, musicians. Yes, I did. Well, I got a couple of questions here to ask you about that. Uh, I, I got a couple of songs which I'm going to play for my listeners later on which I thought were, were good songs. One was extremely bluesy, and it had to be done in New Orleans. Uh, it was called You Better Settle Down. Yeah, and that's, definitely. I thought that was great. That was definitely the type, that was the style of <clears throat> songwriting. I either wrote uh, just straight and out and out love songs, or I wrote things like uh, You Better Settle Down. And uh, those were just uh, those those. Louisiana rhythm and blues uh, type songs. People have to remember the only radio that we had in 1956-57 down there was AM stations. You did not have FM at all. Right. And so you only had maybe one major AM station that played what we would call the top 40. Life was- 
it must have been just wonderful growing up around them. I mean, that, that's it, just... It uh, really was. It, it was It was such a, a great time in my life as far as music goes because what we were used to, we were not used to going up and doing a show, per se. We were used to getting up and, and playing and singing, and everybody danced. I mean, that's the way it was down south. Right. No, nobody sat and watched you do a show. It was all... <laughs> Uh, the way the way you were popular was based upon how many people wanted to get up on the dance floor and dance to your music. That's what dictated whether or not you were popular. Uh, that's something else. You know, I, I I just sitting back for a minute and thinking, and how my mother used to say, "Why does it take you so long to get ready in the morning just to get your hair look like that Clanton kid?" I'll never forget. <laughs> You know, that's so funny, too, because obviously once I started that and uh, went up to New York, started doing shows with Alan Freed, started traveling all over the country, it never occurred to me that there was something different about my hairdo. I just, <laughs> I, 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 I'd worn it that way for so many years, and then the next thing I know, everybody, all these guys, all the my fellow artists, much less the uh, <clears throat> the audiences, they yeah. all made such uh, such a big deal out of it, uh, but but it was a positive thing. Everybody liked it, so I said, "Okay, well, thank you." <laughs> no, I, I was I was in, in, uh, I remember it'd take me twenty twenty minutes every morning before I went to school. Had to curl that hair and made it a perfect triangle. Oh so, my god! <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, but you mentioned one, and I got to bring it up because he's, uh, of course, was a, a good friend of mine and. Uh, I was so sorry to see him go from New York. Tell us a little bit about your experiences with Alan Freed. Well, I could go on and on and on about that uh, that that uh, relationship. I was uh, extremely fortunate that because of Just a Dream becoming a, a national hit <clears throat> and uh, Alan, of course, playing the big hit, through the the uh, the big uh, booking agency, uh, I got booked on one of his shows in New York. Right. And uh, so I went up to New York, and, of course, I was just a real, you know, just a, a – I mean, I really had the accent back in those days. Boy, I'm telling you, just corn pone all the way. And he uh, – I guess he just fell in love with me uh, because the next thing I know – uh, I'm, I'm doing all his shows. He would fly me in uh, uh, several days before the show uh, to hang out together, uh, to do uh, radio shows with him, and uh, we, we'd go out together. And to show you the kind of guy he was on such a personal basis, I'll never forget this. This was just one incident. I went to the hotel. It was about 10 o'clock at night, and we'd been doing radio shows together and just hanging out, and he calls me at the hotel. He says, look, he said, i got a surprise for you. He said, I'm coming to pick you up. So he came over in a cab, picked me up. It's about 11 o'clock at night. He said, I'm, uh, he says, you mentioned somebody that was always one of your favorites. And he said, that person you're, that, that's your favorite, he said, happens to be a friend of mine. I said, well, who's that? He said, well, I'll, I'll, you, you'll find out. So we go across town. We get out of the cab. And we start walking up these steps, and we come into this gorgeous, gorgeous uh, 
nightclub facility, very plush. I said, what's this place? He said, well, uh, Alan said, well, it's a nightclub. It's called, it, it's named the Copacabana. <laughs> and he, I said, oh, is it, uh, I said, this is really nice. Well, I'd never heard of the Copacabana. I was from Louisiana, you know, I was from Baton Rouge. I, I just knew about uh, all the all the night spots and uh, and the beer joints and, the, you know, the places that yeah. I played down there. And I'd never been in a place or played in such a gorgeous place. So we were standing up at the bar. The place was closed, and they were cleaning up. And I had I was looking over at Alan, <clears throat> and the next thing I know, Alan said, Jimmy, he said, I got a surprise for you. He said, you've always wanted, you've, you've talked about this fella, and I found out he was in town. He's a friend of mine. So I, I brought you over so you could meet him personally. And I turned, he said, turn around. I turned around. Now, I'm, I'm right at about 5'11", you know, just a little under six foot. Right. And as I turned around, I looked up at this incredible big man with this incredible smile, put his hand out. He had the biggest hands I've ever seen, much less shake hands with in my life. And I dropped my jaw because looking up was Nat King Cole. Wow. And I absolutely was floored. And Nat King Cole looked down at me, and he was just the most cordial, hospitable, kind, gracious fellow you could ever meet. And I could kick myself because I was in such awe, I didn't even get his autograph. (laughs) But we visited and talked for quite a while, and that was just one of the things with Alan. Now, how in the world he remembered in passing that I would say, boy, I'd, I've always loved Nat King Cole. What it would be so great to meet him. And Alan remembered that and went out of his way to set that up for me to meet Nat King Cole. Mm. And then, of course, uh, I'd done another big show with him, and he came over to me in between shows, and he just got right to the point. He said, uh, I'm getting ready to do another movie. Uh, and he said, uh, I've titled it Go, Johnny, Go. And he said, uh, I'd like for you to play the lead. Well, I, I just dropped my jaw. So the next thing I know, I'm on my way out to California with Alan, and that's where I played uh, the lead of uh, Johnny Melody in, in the movie Johnny put out, I mean, that Alan produced called Go, Johnny, Go. Mm-hmm. So that's how that came about. So He was an, he was an incredible uh, person. Matter of fact, he was not only that way with with uh, the performers, but he was that way with the kids, too. Uh, I don't think you could, I, I, I don't think I mentioned more than twice to him that because I was a uh, president of the Bill Haley and his Comets fan club, uh-huh. and, and he managed to get me to, to see him. Uh, he remembered everything and everybody. I, I was in, totally impressed with both him and his wife at that time, Jackie. She was a sweetheart. I, well, I was really nice. impressed with him, yeah. Yeah, as I say, all of my memories uh, were fantastic, and I would like to go on record and personally say that I was never asked to to play his shows uh, for for uh, for a lesser fee than mm-hmm. what I would I would be paid at other big shows. He always paid uh, the acts. He paid us handsomely. He did not shortchange us. Uh, we were put up in in good hotels. I mean, we were really taken care of in just top-notch fashion, and uh, he he uh, he he was the greatest as far as I'm concerned. 
Absolutely, absolutely agree with you on that. Now, when did it, now I'm embarrassed because I'm supposed to be a Jimmy Clanton fan, and I heard that you made another movie, and I didn't. I've never seen it. Called Teenage well, Millionaire. <laughs> it was a movie called Teenage Millionaire, and for whatever reason, I don't know if they didn't promote it real big. I'm not sure, but it was pretty much a, a spinoff of the same type of movie as Go Johnny Go, uh-huh. uh, except in this one I played a fella uh, who was a very, very rich kid who just wanted to be a part of the music industry. Mm-hmm. And so that was the storyline on that. And uh, it's funny how I got that because I was dating this girl, uh, and we were, in fact, uh, her name was Marianne Mobley. She was Miss America. Oh, wow. Fifty-nine. So, uh, Marianne was my girlfriend at the time. So, we were in New York, and we were walking into this delicatessen, and all of a sudden, this boxer. Everybody recognized him. I, I just knew him from uh, a little bit of TV here and there. Rocky Graziana, mm-hmm. and so evidently, Marianne and Rocky had done a TV show together or something. So they were kind of talking, and the next thing I know, <clears throat> Marianne introduces me to Rocky. And he just stares at me. And he said, I'd like you to meet so-and-so. So he introduces me to this man who ends up to being a producer. And he, Marianne is talking to him about who I am, giving Rocky all the, all, my, all the background on me. And he said, oh, my gosh. He said, I'm getting ready to be a part of a movie. Well, I, I just dropped my jaw. So the next thing I know, I'm on my way out to California with Alan. And that's where I played uh, the lead of uh, Johnny Melody in, in the movie Johnny put out, I mean, that Alan produced called Go Johnny Go. Mm-hmm. So that's how that came about. So He was an, he was an incredible uh, person. Matter of fact, he was not only that way with, with uh, the performers, but he was that way with the kids, too. Uh, I don't think you could, I, I, I don't think I mentioned more than twice to him that because I was a uh, president of the Bill Haley and his Comet Stan Club. Uh-huh. And and he managed to get me to to see him. Uh, he remembered everything and everybody. I, I was in, totally impressed with both him and his wife at that time, Jackie. She was a sweetheart. I, well, I was really I, impressed with him. Yeah. Yeah, as I say, all of my memories uh, were fantastic, and I would like to go on record and personally say that I was never asked to to play his shows. Uh, for for uh, for a lesser fee than mm-hmm. what I would I would be paid at other big shows, he always paid uh, the acts. He paid us handsomely. He did not shortchange us. Uh, we were put up in in good hotels. I mean, we were really taken care of in just top notch fashion. And uh, he he uh, he he was the greatest as far as I'm concerned. Absolutely, absolutely agree with you on that. Now, when did it, now I'm embarrassed because I'm supposed to be a Jimmy Clanton fan, and I heard that you made another movie, and I didn't. I've never seen it. Called Teenage well, Millionaire. <laughs> it was a movie called Teenage Millionaire, and for whatever reason, I don't know if they didn't promote it real big. I'm not sure, but it was pretty much a, a spinoff of the same type of movie as Go Johnny Go, uh-huh. uh, except in this one I played a fella uh, who was a very, very rich kid who just wanted to be a part of the music industry. Mm-hmm. And so that was the storyline on that. And uh, it's funny how I got that because I was dating this girl uh, 
and we were, in fact, uh, her name was Marianne Mobley. She was Miss America. Oh, wow. Fifty-nine. So, uh, Marianne was my girlfriend at the time. So, we were in New York, and we were walking into this delicatessen, and all of a sudden, this boxer. Everybody recognized him. I, I just knew him from uh, a little bit of TV here and there. Rocky Graziana, mm-hmm. and so evidently, Marianne and Rocky had done a TV show together or something. So they were kind of talking, and the next thing I know, <clears throat> Marianne introduces me to Rocky. And he just stares at me. And he said, I'd like you to meet so-and-so. So he introduces me to this man who ends up to being a producer. And he, Marianne is talking to him about who I am, giving Rocky all the, all, my, all the background on me. And he said, oh, my gosh. He said, I'm getting ready to be a part of a movie. And he said, you would, you, you're absolutely just perfect for the part based upon what I'm, I'm hearing from Marianne. So the next thing I know, they pick me up the hotel. We drive out to a big estate, talk with the producer, and they sign me to, uh, to play the lead uh, in, in that. So I, <clears throat> we go out to California, and we film that. Don't give a snap and die. and die Don't give a care I'm a teenage millionaire I'm a teenage millionaire When I'm with you, with you. I, walk. I walk And anywhere Like a teenage millionaire I'm a teenage millionaire I'd go for broke With you Could bank on you. Everyone would know me as a boy. Without a worry, mm, a boy. Without a care, I'm a teenage billionaire. Yes, a teenage out on that and I had to uh, fly back to Louisiana mm. 
I think what the people would love to hear, uh, if you want me to tell some stories, sure. was my was my first encounter with Elvis Presley. Absolutely. I uh, I was I, we we had done a big show in Memphis, and word got out that Elvis was in town. This was nineteen, the early part of nineteen fifty nine, and so of course the first thing I said to everybody, I said, "Hey man, can anybody get word to Elvis that?" They'd love to meet him. Well, lo and behold, make a long story short, we got word to him somehow or another, and he got word back through to us before by the time we finished that show that yes, we could come see, we could come meet him. So here we are. We we go. We were all in different limos and go through the the gates, and I'll never forget this. Got out of the car got out of the limo, walked up, took the steps up, and I was the first one out of the car. I knocked on the door. And the door opens, and it was Elvis himself. He had on a yachting, a white yachting captain's hat, and he looked down at me. Now, I had only had that one major hit, Just a Dream. It was, you know, my career was brand new. Right. And he looked down at me, and he said, Well, Jimmy... He said, if I'd known you were coming, I'd have had just a dream on the record player. <laughs> now, that touched me for the rest of my career. Because here's a guy, when I, we walked into the, his house, to the left was like a kind of a great room, a family room. Mm-hmm. And there were gold albums and records all over up at the top, all of his his gold records. Right. And... There was no room for all of them because on a coffee table, like you would take about four or five magazines and walk over to a coffee table and just kind of drop them, and you know how they would kind of just uh, spread a little bit? Well, he had four or five gold records on the coffee table just uh, spread like that. There was no room at the top. And I'm thinking, my gosh, this guy says something to me like that. I'd had just a dream on the record player. So I never forgot that. And... uh, in fact, I've got an incredible story, I'll tell you. If P- I think people will be interested in this. He shows us the house, then we go out to the uh, garage area, and there's three automobiles out there. And he shows us this 56 Cadillac Eldorado, excuse me, uh, this 56 Cadillac Fleetwood four-door, pink top, blue box. Mm-hmm. You know, everything was two-tone in those days. Right, and he said, "I keep this because it represents how I got started, and you know how things just broke for me." And over in the far corner was a beautiful white, almost like a a cream French vanilla, the first Lincoln Continental Mark One mm. that that Lincoln put out. It was gorgeous, and of course that represented success. But right in front of me was the most gorgeous baby blue. Silver Cloud Rolls Royce. And I just stared at that thing. Man, it was so gorgeous. And, you know, he had put on the lights because it was late at night. But, of course, uh, you know, the the the, the, uh, the moon was out, and so the stars, and so you had reflection on it. So Elvis was standing to my left, and I'm looking over at him and talking. And the next thing I know, I see this silhouette of this big bird, and this big bird physically jumps up on t- 
top of the Rolls Royce over by the passenger side. Uh-huh. And I'm just looking at that. I, I'm okay, you know what? And so I'm talking with Elvis, and all of a sudden, the next thing I know, I look over, and that bird looks to the left, looks to the right, and then looks right down, right down uh, beneath his head, and he starts pecking like crazy. Bam, 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 on the paint, and the paint is flying everywhere. <laughs> I couldn't believe what I saw. The first thing I'm thinking of in those days, I'm thinking, my God, this is a $50,000 car. This bird is pecking away at this gorgeous baby blue paint job. But I don't say anything. So I'm just looking at Elvis, and, you know, we're talking, and so forth, and I'm thinking, he's looking right up. How can he, there's no way he can miss it, but he doesn't bring it up. So we're talking for a little while, but I'm out of the corner of my eye. I'm watching this bird. The next thing I know, the bird looks to the left, to the right. Then he looks down again and pop, 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 starts pecking away, and the paint's flying everywhere again. This time I can't stand it. I look over. I said, Elvis, Elvis, excuse me. I said, you, you are aware, or maybe you're not. Did you, do you see this big bird? I couldn't tell, but finally I looked over. It was a big male pheasant. And I look over, and Elvis says, oh, yeah. He said, it, he said I just get such a kick out of that. He said, that's my pet. And he said, yeah, he gets over there, and he just has a good time. See, Jimmy, he thinks he sees competition, so he's trying to get that competition out of it. Isn't that the funniest thing you ever saw, Jimmy? And I said, and he's laughing his head off. I said, yeah, that's uh, – Really, really funny, Elvis. Uh, yeah. Okay. Oh my so God. So that's my that's... Elvis. That's my Elvis story with his uh, peacock and his baby blue Rolls Royce. Well, I, I gotta. That's incidentally, else. incidentally, yeah. we go back into the house, and all of a sudden, somebody comes in and hands Elvis a Western Union telegram. Keep in mind, there were no fax machines in those days. Right. There was no email. That's the way you either on the phone or Western Union. Mm-hmm. Somebody hands him a, a telegram. He reads it, and his countenance totally changes. And in a very nice way, he dismissed himself. That's the last we saw of him. You know, about a year later, I was with some guys that knew somebody who knew him. And I don't know how they found out, but they said, Jimmy, that was his dad sending him a telegram announcing to Elvis that he had remarried. Mm. You know, his mother had passed away. Right, right. And that that was not, not, Elvis was not very happy about that at all. But that's oh, wow. what that telegram was, mm. yeah. Wow. You know, I, I also know that you, uh, that you had a, um, you had problems with alcohol, I think, for a while, and then you became a, a born-again Christian. And uh, I wanted to tie all this up together with both Elvis and uh, and what you what you went through, and also what what has been in the news just recently with Michael Jackson. Now, I know that's a big well, I, uh, big plate at once, but I I thought I'd open that up to you. Well, that I appreciate that I, I really do. Uh, I I wasn't a heavy heavy drinker. But I drank a good bit of beer when I was 18 in those different clubs. There was no air conditioning in those days. 
But by the time I was 19 and I started traveling with all of the big names, and I won't name anybody, right. but I was impressed with a lot a lot of them because they had been around and they had uh, more hits than me and uh, they were bigger stars than me, so to speak. And I, I went out with a, one particular person and this person was very well known. Everybody would know who I was talking about. Uh, this person was part of a, a nationally known group, one of the biggest, most well-known in the world. But it became very evident that he was an absolute alcoholic. And I, uh, but, but you would never know it because he never slurred his performances. I already said his, so everybody already knows it's a male. His performances were never affected by it, but he took he took a he took a liking to me, and the next thing I know, I'm, I'm hanging out with him, and I'm trying to keep up with him, and the next thing I know, I'm hooked, and right. I got I got to where, uh, I mean, alcohol just became part of my daily activity, but no longer did I just have a few beers. Now it was double uh, double shots of scotch, ordering two double scots of shot uh, scotch at the same time, chasing it with a beer, and uh, I did end up do, doing a performance. And I guess the good Lord protect. Well, I know the good Lord must have protected me because everybody knew I was drunk when I was on stage. I got through it. But somehow or another, I didn't end up having my uh, my names splashed all over the newspapers or my name on the radio. It was never brought up. Nobody ever mentioned it. And uh, little by little, I, I, I quit doing it. Uh, and somehow or another, little by little, I, I, I realized that, you know, I was killing myself. And... Uh, that's exactly what happened to this person. He ended up dying. His I know who you're talking about. Yeah. Well, yeah, but I'm I'm not going to say it myself. I, I know, I know. And uh, it was just uh, it was just horrible. And you know, it could have been me. It could have been me. Right. And I really I really believe that once the encounter that I had with the God of this universe in August of 1980 in the bedroom of my house. People can take it for what it's worth. It's up to them, but it is what it is. But I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. I, I, uh, you know, I was wondering if I was ever going to be a part of music again. Uh, uh, you know, now all of a sudden it, we went from Beatlemania uh, to Woodstock to heavy metal. And all of a sudden the fifties, you know, were were not exactly big anymore. And, it was the only thing I knew. And August of 1980, uh, th- through a series of events of uh, uh, being let go from a, from a job that I was doing uh, music-wise, uh, it's just a, it was just really a bizarre set of circumstances that set me up. Is what, the, I, was what I feel the good Lord did. Set me up in August of 1980 in the bedroom of my house where I just I wanted to die, but I didn't. I was scared of what would happen if I did die, mm-hmm. and uh, I literally cried out to God, and I knew, 
I knew that I was on my way to devastation because mentally I just couldn't handle life. Uh, And uh, with that in mind, uh, I had an encounter with the Lord. He spoke through my mouth and gave me what salvation really is, told me if I would ask, you know, ask him to come into my heart and save me and be Lord of my life, and I did that. And I slept like a baby for the first time in decades. The next morning I woke up, and all of a sudden he began to speak to me. The God of this universe began to speak to me, began to guide me and lead me. And from there, I word got out, and I, was, I started getting invitations from all over the United States to come speak. And that's what I did. And, of course, between 1980 and 1990, uh, I, I was out of touch with, with the music industry because the music industry, as I knew, uh, you know, doo-wop and, and the oldies and so forth, uh, didn't even exist. Uh, mm-hmm. Because I didn't even see it or hear of it uh, with any artist that I worked with anywhere, and so I just I did what uh, God led me to do, and so as I would do that, and all of a sudden, in 1994, I got a call. I don't know how the guy even got my phone number. It was unlisted, and he said, "Jimmy, I've been trying to find you." He said, "There has been a resurgence." A, a, a resurgence of interest of people wanting to see artists like yourself. And I've been trying to find you. He said, people want to see you and hear you again. And I'm thinking, you know, number one, I'm not going back to the bars. <laughs> I'm not going back to the hangouts where the girls hit on guys and, and men are uh, out looking to, to run around with their wives. I'm going to lead lead a life worthy of the Lord. That's how I felt, and I still feel that way, and I still lead that kind of a life to this day, thank thank God. And uh, so I called my own pastor. My my pastor happened happened to be uh, the father of Joel Osteen. Uh, a lot of people have seen Joel mm-hmm. on TV. But his dad, John Osteen, he was my pastor. Mm-hmm. And he he mentored me, and... I happened to be doing a series of engagements, and I called him, and I said, Pastor, I I need some input. Uh, They're offering me a good bit of money, and, uh, you know, heck, there's nothing wrong with that. It helps pay bills and so forth. And I'll never forget what he told me. He said, Jimmy, boy, he he had that real Texas draw. He said, Jimmy, what he called me, Brother Jimmy? He said, that's God. He said, you'll be able to touch people. In many different areas there, he said, many of them who would never cross the threshold of a church. I said, you feel it's okay? He said, it's okay. So I ended up flying up to New York, and the reception that I got was nothing short of phenomenal. So the next thing I know, I see to where these are like sit-down concerts. There's not a bunch of drunks and a a bunch of women... uh, and, and guys, uh, you know, trying to make out on the dance floor. Right. I mean, it, it was I. And so when I saw that change, that's where the the Lord began to use me in such a way. So as I do these shows throughout the country now, 
my ministry is actually a mission field, and my mission field are all of my fellow singers, musicians, people that, that know me. And it's amazing because over the years, many of them have heard through the grapevine that not only am I a Christian, but I'm a minister. And on the other hand, I don't beat anybody over the head with the Bible. I, I just walk in love, and I just uh, try to handle myself in a real godly way. But at the same time, I'm, I'm blessed because God has blessed my voice. I, 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 I believe it's, my voice is better than ever as far as singing. And uh, <clears throat> the Sounds people, the same to me. Well, thank you. After and 50 years, people, sounds the same. <laughs> and the people are very receptive. And uh, one thing about Elvis, I, I'm glad that I got to see him, and I got to see him again out in California, I'm glad I got to be with him before everything happened to him the way it did with us, mm-hmm. the pills and so forth. Right, And, right. Uh, of course, I never met Michael Jackson, but uh, it is uh, – people don't realize how hard it is to keep your feet on the ground when you become, quote, unquote, a celebrity. I mean, I had a touch of it, obviously not to the degree of Elvis or Michael Jackson, uh, but I'll tell you this, I had enough of it and a touch of it to where you, you, you don't even feel you're part of the same planet as other people. You, you, are that, you are that different. You are that above everybody else. And I don't mean that in a condescending manner either, but you just uh, you, you're different. But <clears throat> you can't help it. But way down inside, also, uh, you expect more, and you believe that you should have more, and you end up being able to get more because you can pretty much in our society buy anything you want right. you, for a price. Right. But do you think do you think they feel invulnerable as well that nothing can touch you, them? You you might you might be touching on a good word there. Yes. Yes. But I because think the, you, the main the main problem was, is is that you don't surround yourself with people that you listen to and trust to help you with right decisions. You end up surrounding yourself with people who are going to agree with you, so that way you, you feel it's okay to do and act the way right. you do. And I, I thank God that God brought me to a point in my life to where I wasn't surrounded by people who told me what I wanted to hear so that I would feel justified in doing what pleased me or pleased <laughs> my flesh. But I got the straight scoop from people that said, "Jimmy, this you 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 this is dangerous. This is not good. You should, let, let's pray about this. Let, let's look at this." And so I thank God that I listened and I got that kind of counsel and I followed that kind of that kind of counsel. And so now, after twenty, it'll be twenty nine years this next month in August since my encounter with God in the bedroom of my house. So I have been blessed with uh, 
an incredible knowledge of the Bible, uh, an incredible amount of time of ministry, ministering throughout this United States, as well as singing and, uh, and playing music, and having the opportunity of many, many, many artists that I could name, everybody would know their names, who come to me. Jimmy, would you pray with me? I got this situation. I got that situation. I don't know what, I don't know what to do. They come to me. It's amazing. To this very day, they come to me. I don't go out and try to uh, uh, try to be a big deal or try to make uh, make myself a, you know more important than them. Or they, I just stay very humble as best I can around people and just walk in love. And uh, I have found that that's how God uses me, and they come to me. And I could tell you artist after artist uh, of how that that has happened. And uh, so it's, it's, my life is extremely fruitful now. My life is more fruitful now than it ever was. And uh, the opportunity that God has given me, the resurgence of my music, and I, I thank God I, I still have a, you know, I've kept, uh, I've kept my body correct, in good shape. I'm, I'm not overweight. And uh, from that Louisiana Cajun French background, I still have a thick head of hair. It's a, it's white, but it's thick. <laughs> How do you now look? I'm, I'll tell you, I'm a little bit on the chunky side. I, I, if I was living down in that area, I would be eating all the time. Uh, well, I, I know, but this is there's a thing with the Lord that you have no choice but to honor, and, and that word is called discipline. And oh boy, I'm in trouble. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I, you, I'll tell you. You've heard you've heard my life up to now, uh, so I look absolutely. forward to seeing everybody in Detroit. And I hope they'll come. You know, I've got shows coming up in Tucson, Arizona. I've got shows coming up in Phoenix. I've got shows coming up later on in the year uh, in Delaware. Uh, and uh, it looks like there's a chance I might be on New Year's Day. I might be in uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico. Mm-hmm. Okay. So there are a lot of doors that are opened. And so uh, people, <clears throat> feel free to, to check me out on my website, www jimmyclanton.com. Uh, I've been told by people, uh, and I've got great people working with me, uh, that my website is just uh, the best of, uh, of all of the, uh, 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 the rock and roll people. It's, so, you know, they might get a kick, might get a kick out of it. So, um, yeah, they anyway. got a great picture of you and Elvis and Rocky Graziano on that, too. Yeah, that's the one where when I was out in California doing that movie right. called Teenage Millionaire, <laughs> And Rocky and I went across town, and uh, that's where uh, Elvis was filming uh, some scenes from Blue Hawaii. And uh, Rocky wanted to meet him real bad. He said, I know you know him, so I want you to introduce me. And so that's how that came about. Well, look, Jimmy, i got to tell you, this has been a real pleasure. Uh, I want you to wish you good luck in um, in Michigan, and uh, hopefully we're we're trying to get some we're trying to get these people who are doing this ultimate doo-wop revival to do some shows down here in Florida. And I hope to to meet you in person real soon again after 50 years. Well, and, that's, uh, <laughs> that's and, fine with me, sir. <laughs> right, and absolutely the best of luck to you. And we thank you for for giving us your time here on Old Time Rock and Roll. And I'll be in touch with you about getting a copy of this for you as well. That, okay, I appreciate it. Okay, well, Jimmy, God, thanks so much. Well, God bless everybody. Okay, thank you so much, Jimmy. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. What a wonderful gentleman, Jimmy Clanton. 
I'm going to close tonight's show with a, a Jimmy Clanton song. You know, I'm well known for pulling things out of my hat that people have never heard. Here, to me, is one of the finest things that Jimmy ever did, and it's totally uh, been just ignored, and it's so different for Jimmy. Here's Jimmy Clanton and a million drums. And for, and for everybody here at Old Time Rock and Roll, this is Lee Douglas. See you next week. That's a wrap. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.